figured out the best way how to get a suitable gift for a woman. At least one or two weeks before her birthday, spend a day together window shopping. See what she likes and then secretly note to yourself what that specific item is. Select only one of them. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Mr. A+. On today's podcast, I have two guests who specialize in neurodiversity. If you're not sure what that is, we're all about to find out more together. It's a subject that I get a lot of messages about, and I thought it would be interesting and informative. So today, I'm chatting to clinical psychologist Monique Mitchelson and clinical neuropsychologist Michelle Livock from the podcast, The Neurodivergent Woman. Hello, Monique. Hi, Michael. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Michael. So nice to be here. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for sparing your time to join the podcast today. We're very excited to be here, Michael. So thank you for having us. My first question is, what is neurodiversity? So great question. Um, It's one that Monique and I get all the time as well. Um, Neurodiversity is basically a total framework shift from how the medical profession has previously thought about things like autism and ADHD. So in the past, as we all know, um, it's been really medicalized. So what that means is that anyone whose brain works differently or who thinks about things differently, it's almost been seen as a disorder or a problem or a deficit. Whereas neurodiversity is the understanding that it's actually very normal and very evolutionarily adaptive for our brains to work in so many different ways. So neurodiversity sees things like ADHD and autism as just normal variations in the human condition, in the human experience. I guess I can relate to that. If you think about the concept of, say, biodiversity, that there needs to be lots of different types of plants, soil, you know, air in the environment, everything goes together to play different roles and everything has different functions. But they're, even though they're different, they're all equally as valid. That's sort of like what neurodiversity is. It's recognizing everyone has different strengths and different roles to play and that, yeah, we're all part of a diverse population. Yes, we're, we're all unique. That's right. My second question is, what are the differences in how autistic individuals and neurotypical individuals communicate? So this is one of the main, I guess, brain differences between people who are what we call neurotypical. So neurotypical doesn't mean normal. It just means common. So people who have the most common type of brain are neurotypical. Whereas people who are autistic have a different type of brain function. So differences in communication can be one of those main points of difference. And what I often find in my clinical practice is that neurotypical people tend to be really driven by the need to build relationships. That's usually the main source of uh, information that they're paying attention to. Now, That doesn't mean that people on the spectrum don't want to build relationships at all um, or that they're not focused on that either. It's just that when neurotypical people are communicating, they're mostly focused on social information. 
So that means that neurotypicals mostly want to talk about themselves or talk about other people. They're all about building status, maintaining their sort of status in the social hierarchy. Whereas autistic people tend to be much more about information sharing. So the topic of what you're talking about is much more important to an autistic individual than to a neurotypical person. So this is why autistic people often love to talk about things that they're really interested in and have great conversations about things that are of interest, which I'm sure you can relate to, Michael. Yes, I can definitely relate to that. If there's something that I'm passionate about, I do tend to um, discuss how much I love that certain thing and I would go on and on for hours about it. Well, I could at least, but I don't really. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I think, you know, neurodiversity is so cool. Um, it's such a cool and, and positive movement away from that super medicalized model where people used to think, oh, people on the spectrum can't have conversations. They don't want to build relationships, which is, of course, not true at all. It just depends on what you're talking about, right? Um, you know, yes. when you have a topic that you're really passionate about, there's no problem with conversation. That's correct, because unfortunately, not everybody cares about their social status. Yes, exactly right. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> I, I certainly don't, don't care about my social status. Mm. How have you found, Michael, when you have talked with someone else about an area of interest that you have that they also are really passionate about? If I could see that that person is disinterested, I would just awkwardly wrap that topic up and then ask them questions that are relevant to them based on what I, what I know about them or what I've learned from them. Yeah, there's no better feeling than really being able to talk uh, with someone else that's super passionate about what you're passionate about and you can just talk and talk as much as you want to with each other and those are some of the best conversations to have sometimes. That's correct. Although I actually... This may come as a bit of a surprise to you, but I actually um, communicate exceedingly well with neurotypical people. In fact, um, when I interact with neurotypicals, I find it more preferable, to be honest. That's really interesting. And firstly, Michael, it doesn't surprise me that you communicate very well. I think that you're a very good communicator. Can you explain to us why you find it preferable to talk to neurotypicals? That's really interesting. I always have because my mother never placed me in any in any special needs school. My mother always placed me in a in a mainstream environment because she knew that that would benefit me. And to this day I'm really grateful to her for it. That's interesting because I know Monique um, has shared previously that it can be sometimes tricky when um, you have two people with really strong interests, both of which kind of not super interested in the other person's interest and it can kind of be a little bit like a communication traffic jam. So I wonder if if that's one of the reasons. Well, it um it depends on the the topic and um if I'm short of a, of any responses, I would sometimes just simply say I see. It's like the best way I can come up with to to acknowledge what what they're saying but also as a reply, but also without ignoring them as well. Because if I say nothing, they'll think I'm ignoring them. Yeah, I, I think everyone, whether they are neurotypical or neurodivergent, just wants to be heard. 
We all want to feel valued and respected and heard. But it is interesting what you've talked about, Michael, because there is a theory that's come out called the double empathy theory. And that theory talks about how in some studies that they've done that when an autistic person is communicating with another autistic person, they found that they both pick up on each other's social cues and facial expressions more easily often than communicating with a neurotypical person, just like two neurotypical people often communicate more easily and pick up cues from each other. And what they found in this double empathy study is that an autistic person did have more difficulty sometimes picking up on the facial expression and social cues of a neurotypical person But the neurotypical people in the study also had difficulty reading the autistic person's facial expression and knowing what they were thinking. So it was sort of like the first study to show that it's not just all on the autistic person, but actually neurotypical people may need to work on their autistic social skills so that, you know, we can communicate across these different cultures with each other. It's like, you know, you go to a different country, there's different, you know, customs and traditions, and there's going to be a clash. And so we all have to learn to understand each other and both sides need to put effort into that. Mm, That's very true. Whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, we all want to be loved. We all, we all hate being Mm. ignored. We all want to connect with each other. So, so true, Michael. And I think it really gets to the heart of any communication issue or difficulty between any two people, regardless of whether you're autistic or neurotypical or whatever. Often the core of the issue is people just not feeling heard, respected, seen, loved, appreciated. And I think, you know, if we're in a communication or in a relationship with someone, it's really about thinking, how does this person want to be seen? You know, how can I show this person that I connect with them and I love them? Um, And that's true regardless of who you are. So I totally agree with you, Michael. I sometimes get asked about love languages and which my love language is. How might these look different for autistic individuals? So great question, Michael. I mean, I'm sure all your listeners would would know, um, but the five main love languages, we've got words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, physical touch, and acts of service. And this is a great way of understanding, you know, how people like to be loved, how people like to receive love and care. And it's really interesting because some people have come out and said, well, actually for autistic individuals, the love languages might look a little bit different. So rather than quality time in the way that neurotypical people like quality time, which is really social focus, so really kind of the other person focus, spending lots of time interacting, really interaction heavy, an autistic person, their quality time might be more like parallel play. So spending time with another person, but you're both kind of doing the same thing. Sorry, you're doing your own thing kind of in the same space. Um, Similarly, you know, uh, physical touch. So some autistic people are quite sensitive to touch. So they might like really light touch or really heavy pressured touch. So really strong hugs, um, really firm touch. And the other thing there when we're thinking about communication it is an autistic love language to information share. 
to say, hey, I just found out all this really cool information about this thing. Can I tell you everything about this thing that I just learned? Um, And I think that's a really big sign of love and connection for autistic individuals. What do you reckon, Michael? Yeah, um, that does seem very much like an an autistic individual. For those who, um, who are sensitive to touch, it kind of reminds me of Sheldon Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. If you're going to ask me what my love language is, it's very hard to select only one. So basically, my love language is, is all five of them. <laughs> you just love love. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. to keep things in balance. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think that's fair. I don't want to select one either. I want all of them. <laughs> in fact... With gifts, I actually figured it out. I f- figured out the best way out how to get a, a gift, a suitable gift for a woman. And what's that? At least one or two weeks before her birthday, spend a day, spend a day together window shopping. See what she likes and then secretly note to yourself what that specific item is. And if you have a note, a list of them, select only one of them. That's very good advice. I totally agree. A lot of males, men, men don't really enjoy shopping with women, but I do. <laughs> That's a fantastic trait to have, Michael. I'm sure there's a lot of women out there that would love shopping with you. Yeah, it is hard to choose just having one love language, you know, when when you can have all four. But it is interesting. My husband is on the autism spectrum and oh. he his favorite love language is actually getting compliments. Yeah, he loves being complimented. Oh. Um, whereas my favorite love language is acts of service. Um So having him, you know, do the dishes or clean the house or do something for me. So if you both have a different love language, really understanding each other's love language and being aware of that and doing that for each other is so helpful. Again, whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, it's just having that consideration and understanding your partner. I agree, Monique, and it's really about that, thinking about what does my partner or my friend or this person that I'm in relationship with, what do they need to feel connected? Um, And I think, you know, when you're in neurotypical, um, neurodivergent relationships, there may be an added layer of complexity with that because Mm. the communication style might be slightly different. But as we've said a few times today, it's still the same thing. It's still about thinking, what does my relationship partner need to feel connected? Yeah. I couldn't agree more. What advice do you have for parents raising children who are neurodiverse? So probably my first piece of advice would be to learn about yourself first. Right. And I think, again, this is true for every parent, but because we know that neurodivergence is genetic, it's very likely that one, if you've got a neurodivergent kid, it's very likely that one or both of the parents are also neurodivergent. So the more that you know about yourself and the more you know about how your own brain works as a parent, the easier it is to actually support your child with what they need. So that would definitely be my first tip. Learn about yourself. And my second tip is learning about your child's neurodivergence, particularly if their brains work a little bit differently to yours. And the reason that I think this is so important is because a lot of time when someone is behaving in a way that we don't understand, particularly someone that we're in a close relationship with, like a partner or a child, 
there's a tendency to take it personally, right? There's a tendency to think, this person is doing this to annoy me, or this person is doing this because they're just being naughty or bad. And when we understand the why of a behavior, so why someone is doing something, it takes all that conflict out of the situation and it actually helps us work out what do we need to do to support our children to be the best versions of themselves that they can be rather than taking it personally. And I have a little anecdote about that, if that's all right. Um, one of uh, one of our guests on our podcast was sharing this really incredible story about um, her two parents and her mother was late diagnosed autistic. And after they got the diagnosis, the relationship between her mom and her dad improved massively because before that, all the sensory sensitivities that her mom was experiencing, her dad just sort of perceived as annoying. But once they understood that they were actually just sensory issues and that it wasn't a choice and she wasn't being precious um, and that it was actually quite distressing to her, they became this team where they then worked out, how can we make sure that you're comfortable in any given situation? And it massively improved their relationship quality. And I think, I, you know, I've noticed the same thing with parents and children um, in, in clinic. Oh, for me, um, I have a, I'm pretty hypersensitive. Mm. I also hate loud noises and loud music, which is why if I'm in a place where there's a lot of excess noise and very loud music, like a concert, I would have earplugs to minimize the noise. And I also find it find it annoying if, if people are in my personal space, because I like mm. to have that as well. Yeah, I think it's really good to understand that about yourself what are your likes and dislikes? What are your needs? Um, because every family is different. So for example, if you had people in your family that have ADHD, they might want to go out to that loud concert to get that stimulation and they will love the loud music. But if there's members of the family that are autistic and they're sensitive to stimulus, that might be the last thing they want to do is to go out into that noisy, crowded environment. So when you um, are parents raising children, it's really looking at how can you kind of do activities together as a family that meet everyone in the family's needs. And sometimes it can be doing things in a way that may not be a neurotypical way because you're not a neurotypical family. Um, and it's just really learning what are everyone's needs and likes? So if spending family time for you is at home with everyone playing their own video game, that still might be really enjoyable and connecting, um, you know, and that might be how your neurodivergent family works and that's okay. That's a very fair point. While my mother was raising me growing up, she didn't do anything different to other parents raised me the same way any other mother would raise their child. She su supported me, encouraged me, was pretty protective of me, always raised me to eat healthy and do right by others. Yeah, it sounds like your mum instilled a lot of great values in you and it sounds like she was also really attuned to what you needed. You know, she considered you as an individual rather than just, you know, a blanket. This is how you're supposed to raise kids. It sounds like she was very attuned to you, which is awesome. Yes, she was. In fact, she wasn't the only one that, that instilled a lot of strong values in, in me. 
My dad did as well, so you can thank both my parents for that. Well, thank you, Michael's parents. <laughs> they're, they're, they're called Tom and Vanessa. Tom and Vanessa, beautiful. My next question for you is, why do you think some people of the older generation may have difficulty understanding neurodiversity or even people in this specific category? I think that there's a lot of differences in that. I think that there's some people in the older generation, in every generation, who um, understand it really well and who are really open to this kind of change. And of course, some people who find it a lot harder. And, you know, I think a change in the way that we think about things is always tricky. And the older that we are, sometimes the more ingrained certain beliefs are in, in us. And that makes it a little bit harder to kind of shift our perspective or shift our way of thinking. But usually I find that people who have a hard time with it, they're often people who experience difficulties perhaps in their primary school or in their high school or in their childhood or early adulthood. And they didn't actually get the support that they needed. So sometimes it's that feeling of kind of deep sadness of, well, I missed out on this, so therefore other people shouldn't get this support, or I missed out on this, and that makes me a really strong person, and I'm really proud of that in myself. So if I accept that, you know, there's such a thing as neurodiversity, and maybe the challenges that I had I didn't have to have, I think some people find that really hard to kind of integrate that with how they see themselves or, you know, their own life experiences. If people who are neurodiverse have trouble accepting what they have, here's how I look at it. That's part of who you are. Embrace it, accept it. Very true. Mm. But in your own in your own good time. Some people just takes longer than others. And that's not a bad thing either. Yeah, and it's interesting, Michael, because, you know, it, yeah, it can take a little while for people to kind of come to that exactly as you put so beautifully, embracing, accepting. I've always found, though, that when people do get to that point, it is so affirming and so freeing because particularly people who are diagnosed in adulthood, right? You know, a lot of people kind of yeah. went their whole life believing this story about themselves, that there's something wrong with them or, you know, why can't I do this or why, you know, is this happening? And once we change that story to, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with you. Your brain just works in a nope. bit of a different way. It is so yeah. freeing and so affirming. Yeah. So you learn things things differently mm. to other people so what exactly right thank god that happened to me as well just think of it as improvising i love that <laughs> i've heard that greta thunberg is on the spectrum um what other famous people from history that my listeners and i may have heard of are on the spectrum there's quite a few famous people on the spectrum and actually our boss at our work tells us that if it wasn't for autistic people, we would still actually be in caves with no electricity because a lot of the brightest, uh, most famous scientists and inventors were likely on the autism spectrum. And it's hard to give uh, like historical figures diagnoses. Mm. 
But yeah, one of the most important scientists in history, a guy called Henry Cavendish, he actually discovered hydrogen and he is probably the most well-known case of like a scientist to be on the autism spectrum. But there's a lot of people actually in the arts and creative fields on the autism spectrum. So I don't know if you like Pokemon, but the creator of Pokemon actually is on the autism spectrum. So his name is Satoshi Tajiri. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I love Pokemon as a kid and I still do. So it's really cool that he's autistic. Interesting. Yeah. Also a few famous actresses. So Anthony Hopkins, he played Hannibal Lecter. He's on the autism spectrum. Tim Burton. um, So he's done a lot of amazing creative things. He's autistic. Daryl Hannah. She was uh, the star of a lot of films like Blade Runner and Steel Magnolias and Splash. She's on the autism spectrum. Dan Aykroyd from Ghostbusters is on the autism spectrum as well. Yeah, quite a lot. Susan Boyle. um, Ah. Yep, she's a famous singer. She got her diagnosis and actually Courtney Love. So she was Kurt Cobain's uh, wife and she's a rock star as well. So did you know about um, some of those famous people on the spectrum? In fact, until today, I didn't even know that um, Greta Thunberg was on the spectrum. Oh, my God. What? She's amazing. I love Greta Thunberg. Yeah, she's quite, quite inspirational. Well, there's a lot more people on the spectrum out there than what people think. They also care about a lot of things that some people would not even give any thought to. So many famous activists are on the spectrum and that's part of that incredible strength in, you know, having really strong interests, um, feeling really passionate about social justice. So this is a really common trait of girls and women on the spectrum, actually. They're often, their special interest is social justice issues. And when we think about Greta Thunberg, the amount of dedication and passion that she's put into her climate activism I can't really think of a neurotypical person who would do that. (laughs) You know, I think that her autism has actually given her this incredible strength. Yes. I find her a very inspirational and impressive person. Yeah, me too. I certainly would love to shake her by the hand. I think, you know, some businesses are even actively hiring neurodivergent people because of their strength. So I don't know, Michael, if you've heard about something, uh, this is an Australian company, it's called the Genius Armory. So it's a cyber tech security company and they actively recruit autistic you know, employees because of their unique abilities. So I think we're definitely coming to a point where, um, you know, the strengths of neurodivergence are becoming really well known. So it's becoming more apparent to the world. And so people are becoming more accepting of it. Yes. I think, too, the more that it's being recognized and diagnosed, um, the more information that's come out in the last 20 years and in the last five to 10 years, even on older generations that never got diagnosed or on girls and women who were undiagnosed. Yeah, the more information's coming out, people are recognizing neurodivergence within themselves and their family. They're talking about it more. There's more training that people are getting um, in recognition as well. And I don't know about you, but even in just the last year, I've seen a lot more articles in the media about autism and ADHD. And I think um, like the project and different 
um, shows have done, TV um, articles on it. So I think that's helping improve awareness and people recognizing that, um, yeah, neurodiversity basically is all around us. I believe that we're now moving on to our Ask Mr. A Plus segment. Anything that comes to mind? Michael, my question is about Modern Family. I'm hoping, is Modern Family a show that you really like? It's one of my favorites. Oh, brilliant. All right, I chose correctly. So my partner and I are actually making our way through it now. And Michael, I was wondering, who is your favorite Modern Family character and why? It's kind of hard to decide because I think they're all great. Jay, Jay is amazing and so is Gloria. Um, Phil and Claire are pretty funny. Haley, Alex, and Luke are also pretty hilarious in their own ways. Um, so are Mitch and Cam, for that matter. And even Joe is pretty funny as well. He's such an adorable little 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 lad. Although, I will have to admit, in some ways, Gloria kind of reminds me of my mother. Really? How so? Because they're both, um, they both have Latin genes. They're both, um... They can be very loud when they talk, <laughs> and they can be pretty feisty as well. So maybe Gloria by default then, because she reminds you of your mum. Yep. Well, it's because um, um, Gloria's Colombian and my mother's half Italian. They both lat- have Latin genes. My question is, um, I know you have a really good sense of fashion, and I've seen you dressed in a lot of beautiful suits, but I also heard that you like Hawaiian shirts and my husband loves Hawaiian shirts. And I was wondering if you have a favorite Hawaiian shirt and what is the design? Well, basically I would choose Hawaiian shirts that have nature designs, you know, of animals or plants as well. One of the particular brands that I wear is Tommy Bahama. Lovely. I got actually six of them while I was in Hawaii two years ago. I really miss that island. Hopefully your Hawaiian shirts remind you of your trip to Hawaii. Hawaiian shirts and suits, um, they're my two signature looks. Fabulous. That's a great signature look. Thank you. Do you two ladies happen, happen to have any other questions? How did you first get into ballroom dancing and what is your favorite dance? Because I also met my husband at ballroom dancing. I'm a very old-fashioned person, like my dad. I don't like doing that kind of dancing that people do at nightclubs because I would just make a fool out of myself. Because um, with ballroom dancing, it's formal and it's traditional. And um, it's supposedly more intimate as well. The waltz is my favorite type kind of dance. I've always loved doing it. And... Well, I found out years ago that it's a kind of ballroom dancing. So I looked for some ballroom dance classes years ago and I came across one at Dance World down in Wollongong. And I did it um, for, for a few years, a couple of years actually, but I stopped doing it because uh, I was my dad told me that nobody my age does it anymore. So I would like to do it again, but... Not until I have a girlfriend. Yeah, it is actually a good way to meet people um, and socialize because there definitely are people out there who are also interested in ballroom dancing. 
Well, that's how you met your husband, isn't it, Monique? Yeah, my husband. Um, Doing the tango. Yeah, got a, got a wife <laughs> out of ballroom dancing, actually. So it worked for him. Hopefully it works for you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that would really appreciate that you know how to dance because um, a lot of men won't dance because they're afraid to look foolish. So if you have someone that knows how to dance, it's great. You have to go to ballroom dancing classes. You have to go back, Michael. Then you'll be able to meet some, some ballroom dancing ladies. I would love to do it again. That's all the time we have for today, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to hear more from Michelle and Monique, you can always check out their podcast, The Neurodivergent Woman. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Monique, for taking time out of your schedules to appear on this on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael. It was an absolute pleasure. The pleasure was mine. Thank you, Michael. It was wonderful to talk to you. Likewise, ladies. It was a pleasure for me too. Mm-hmm.